0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ariel Zumros. I want you to think back to your favorite childhood TV shows. Was it Blue's Clues, Little Bear, Winnie the Pooh? Mine was The Simpsons, which is not exactly a kid's show, but I did learn a lot. Animated TV shows are so important for kids because they can teach them to read, draw, spell, talk... And the creative ways in which shows tell stories, where they whisk kids away to some colorful imaginary world, that contributes to the learning. But shows like that aren't accessible to every child, like deaf kids and children who are blind, for example, which could, in turn, affect how these kids learn language during those sensitive and formative early childhood years. My next guest is someone who's incorporating ASL, American Sign Language, into children's media that's made for and by the deaf community. Melissa Malskoon is the founder and director of the Motion Light Lab at Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C. Melissa is third-generation deaf and is answering my questions in her native ASL. The person you're hearing is an interpreter. Melissa, welcome to Science Friday. Thank you for having me. I'm super happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. So first of all, tell me about ASL access in early childhood. Oh, that's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking very, very generally,
1: all children, deaf, hearing, otherwise, need language exposure to learn, to grow, to develop cognitively. Deaf children need visual language. And so for the most part, linguistically, that means a signed language. And language acquisition, though, goes in the same way, whether it's spoken language or signed language. Kids that are born into signing homes hit the same language developmental milestones that hearing kids born into speaking homes do. But now, what happens when deaf kids don't have access to things on TV or media? There's plenty of good content out there. And a lot of people think that captions are the solution and that captions equal access for all. And of course, captions offer access to an extent. But we're talking about kids that aren't readers yet kids that are still learning language, kids that are still developing vocabulary. At that age, captions aren't going to cut it. And what we need then is sign language representation in children's media. And there are such limited resources out there. There's no TV show or series. There's no real central core of access for deaf kids in children's media. I think that if we provide that, not only deaf kids will benefit, But hearing kids will
0: as well. Right. So what you're talking about is language deprivation. Yeah, it is certainly um, a consequence if a child
1: doesn't get access to language or good high quality language, or if they get such minimal access to language, that does result in language deprivation. So to back up a little bit, I don't think I shared this stat, but 95% of deaf people are born to hearing families. And that's a global statistic. So what that means is that deaf kids are born into an environment where their parents are navigating all kinds of questions about what it means to have a deaf kid, including the prospect of learning sign language. I think that there are real gaps in the early intervention system, the systems that parents interact with when they first find out that their kids are deaf. So hearing parents will sometimes not learn sign language at all or not learn how to sign until their kid is maybe two or three. And think about what that means for a three-year-old to have barely had language exposure. So that results in language deprivation. And you see lifelong consequences of that. They end up usually struggling to develop full literacy. And a lot of that can be traced back to what happens in early childhood. So that's where we're focusing our efforts. That's what we want to fix to make sure that deaf kids have the same opportunities and access to
0: life that anyone else does. What does most childhood entertainment look like for kids who are deaf and hard of hearing? So that's another really good question. You do have
1: some people that have put out ASL videos, videos in ASL. So my lab, for example, we have bilingual storybook apps that are available in signed languages and written languages. And it means that kids have access to great language models, high quality. Parents can use those as resources to interact with their kids. But it's not like those storybook apps are going to substitute the full range of language exposure that a kid needs. On TV, I think a lot of deaf kids really primarily enjoy shows that are highly visual and that really are good for comedic value and entertainment value, but not educational value. So I think that what hearing kids get from shows like that are a lot more choices. They have shows that are entertaining and educational. Parents can choose what show they want their kid to watch at different times. And with deaf kids, it's more like, well, whatever is visually appealing, and then they're filling in blanks and gaps. They're relying on behavioral information that they're seeing, the actions, but the meaning behind it, the labels for things, understanding the why isn't there. So there's a ton of guesswork on the part of deaf kids in the early years. And I don't want that to continue. I want kids to understand what things really mean. I want them to understand the context and really develop that knowledge base, start making those connections. Because again, it's a lot of filling in the blanks and making connections that might not always be accurate. So I don't want their early years just to be a guessing game.
0: What about the neuroscience of it all? You know, is there a difference in how brains process language when it's seen versus heard? So it turns out that actually an I can say this because our lab is part of the visual
1: language and visual learning center, which is a research center, based at at university. So they use various types of imaging to see what's going on in the brain and over and over, they find that there actually is no difference. So the brain is actually just looking for patterns in language, the rhythms that are present in all language, regardless of the modality. So language can be spoken for hearing kids. And the brain will take that auditory input and process it. And for kids that are exposed to a sign language, they'll take that visual language and process it in the same way. So it's really fascinating that the brain doesn't discriminate and the brain isn't choosing, it just wants those patterns. And so ultimately what it's about is the timing of it, is getting that language exposure early. There really is a sensitive period and it's birth to three. So that's really, really early but those couple years create such a foundation for the rest of our lives and that foundation is what really allows for us to place all the rest of the building blocks that we get in life upon
0: and i mean you know this history so much better than than i do as a third generation deaf person in the us but asl was not always considered on par with other languages and you know that research that you're talking about disproves that entirely exactly there are so many misconceptions, misinterpretations, misunderstandings
1: about signed languages. I mean, even when my granddad was alive and when he was my age, deaf people, of course, valued using sign language. And they knew that it was integral to their communication. But they grew up in a society where their language is just perceived as signs. And so even my granddad just said, we use signs. They didn't say sign language. There was definitely not any level of prestige or respect associated with the language. There was certainly a stigma to using a sign language. It wasn't seen as something that you could use to express any sort of intellect or education. And that belief really was pervasive in the deaf community as well. It wasn't until the 1960s or 70s that... Linguists started to undertake research on what's now known as American Sign Language, and they realized, wait a minute, there is a grammatical structure here. And so they really flipped the whole conversation on its head to say, this is actually a language. Then bilingual education, the bicultural movement began, where people believed that you had to have a firm understanding of ASL and English, and it really led to better literacy outcomes. And so we're now at a point where we certainly know better. And to add to that, there's about 300 documented sign languages
0: in the world. Linguists are still doing this research on sign languages. Thanks for sharing that. That really puts it into context. So you and your team started out making storybook apps. If I opened one of them, what would I see? So right, that's exactly how we got started. We designed storybook apps to help give
1: a resource that would expose deaf kids and their families to sign language. And we wanted to help them own the reading experience. So we designed them to look like a traditional storybook. You see the words at the bottom of the screen, but then you can also hit the play button and you'll see a narrator that's signing what is said on that page. So the kids can see the text. They can also click on individual words that will open video of just the narrator signing just that word. And then we also have a part that they can watch the whole entire story be told.
0: Oh, very cool. Okay. And now you're working on a TV show. Can you tell me about it? I'd
1: love to. It's so exciting. We started these storybook apps about 10 years ago. And our very first one, the character's name is Mavo. She's deaf. She's a curious, adventurous, spunky little girl. And so we figured, why not make Mavo sign instead of just featuring a storyteller in the apps? So while we were making the storybook apps, we started working on motion capture in the lab to make 3D signing characters. We did that because we certainly saw the need to have animated characters that could sign. We knew that it would be appealing to young kids, that it would offer representation. And honestly, going into animation opens up worlds of possibilities in storytelling. But we wanted to make sure that they were fluent. So we had this amazing character model. We had been working on motion capture, and we now got to a point where we can have Mavo sign. And she looks so great, animated, signing, that we figured we're ready to do a TV series. And she can be the central
0: character of that series. She'll be a signer. And we're building a series called Here Comes Mavo. All right. I mean, that sounds really incredible. I can't wait to see it. So would Mavo kind of be like Dora the Explorer, you know, television in two languages, except that in this case, of course, communication happens simultaneously?
1: That's a good question. In some ways, I'd say that you could say that they would be in the same category in that Dora is really well known as a great educational show. We intend for Here Comes Mavo to also be educational. We have a curriculum as part of our series. We've worked with an educational consultant who worked on Dorothy's floor. So every episode certainly has an educational component to it. But our goal is for Mabo to be a signer, but also to use gesture and visual communication in all of her interactions. So there won't be spoken language as a component to the show. It'll be entirely all of the communication will be visual and visual language will be centered.
0: So what's the process of filming and making Mavo? You know, do your actors have to get dressed up in a high-tech suit? You know, we're talking about motion capture, right? Exactly.
1: Yeah. The
0: process is, of course, that we need
1: to have a live person create the content. So they'll act out the scenes and we'll use motion capture. So they'll wear the high-tech suits that you're talking about, capture them. And it's in the post-production that we create the animation and
0: we assign characters to the data. That's incredible. That sounds like so much fun. I do want to ask you, why is it so important to use motion capture for this? You know, why why go through that extra layer of animation at all? Why not just draw the characters and have them sign that way? Hand drawn, well, I, don't, I mean, more hand drawn animation, or 2D animation
1: has a lot of limitations for signing. So we're focusing on 3D animation partly because ASL and sign languages are 3D languages. Space is used as part of the language. And if we were to go with 2D animation, you would miss some of the information that needs to be conveyed with dimension. So it's not to say that there's no place for 2D animation and there's no value. I think that people should always try to push the boundaries of whatever their mediums can do, but We wanted to design and build a series where people would be signers. And especially thinking about the fact that our audience is so young, they're not already fluent in ASL. We needed to make sure that the language was as high quality as possible. We need them to be able to see the dimensionality of the characters. So to see a person signing from different angles and 3D motion capture allows us to do that, to move the camera, because you can still understand ASL look, if you look at someone from the side or even partially from behind. So that's part of why we're using motion capture. And then it also means that you're the language that you're seeing in the series is based on real language. So all of the rhythm, that's part of the language, the synchrony with facial expression is all present when you use 3d motion capture. It is of course a more labor intensive process, but I think technology changes really fast and any long or intensive process now is going to become more automated and more seamless over time.
0: Melissa, you've been working on this project, you know, the, the storybook apps, and now this TV show for a really long time. What does it mean to you to create stories that deaf children will not only learn from, but also get to actually enjoy? I mean, it is sort of like my entire life's
1: work, Uh Beyond just my career, I absolutely love this work. And there's times where it's like you you see a kid's face just light up because a character is funny or a kid reacts when a character does something wrong. Or you see them, I don't know, you know, like when a kid says, oops, like what they're really doing is making connections. You see those light bulbs go off. You see those sparks get ignited You see things spark their curiosity. And when I see those moments, it it just means so much to me. And that's what always gives me my drive. It rejuvenates my belief in this work. And there isn't a ton of opportunity for this. There's individual efforts. People have tried to do things on their own at home, like amateur efforts, but there's not been a place or space that really invests in a professional production like this, where storytellers are looked for, artists are brought in. There's been no true investment in the creation or production of original work like this. And the process itself is a celebration of our language and culture, knowledge, history, community. And I think it's not just about making cute stories or making things accessible. Absolutely. It's bigger than that. As a person, I just, I want deaf literature to have a place in human knowledge.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a really good note to end on. Melissa, thank you for joining me. It's absolutely been my pleasure to be here. Thank you again for the opportunity to have the conversation. Melissa Malskoon is the founder and director of the Motion Light Lab at Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C., To watch my full interview with Melissa or see videos of her lab's work, go to sciencefriday.com slash lightlab. Thank you to Jennifer Vold for interpreting and to Jenna Beekham for consulting on this segment.